watchers in the fourth dimension. I'm certain of one thing, Mr. McReynold. Evil spirits don't destroy oil rigs. It's a self-destructor that works like this. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And teeth are very serious things, Mr. Huckle. This episode, Julie's interests collide once again as Doc 2 is once more off to Scotland in the season 13 opener, Terror of the Zygons. But first, Don has been diligently aggregating our mail and is going to give us the rundown. Over to you, Don. Buckle up, guys. It's going to be a long ride. <laughs> For our episode on Genesis of the Daleks, Mike Kerr says, Hi, Watchers. Just listen to your Genesis of the Daleks episode. Guy Siner, who played Caleb Boy General Raven, recently popped up on my Facebook feed as a suggested friend. One of my school friends is an actor who knows him. These days, Siner is more famous for playing the gay German officer Lieutenant Gruber in the BBC's World War II French resistance comedy, Allo, Allo. I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> In which his character chased after a lead character, Renee, played by Gordon Kay, and went on about his little tank. I didn't send him a friend request, as he's probably far too busy wiping the thalls off the face of Scaro. That little tank might have been useful if he'd had it there. That sounds like a euphemism and extremely dirty. So, good job, Mike. <laughs> Nathan Laws says, This is a great story in one of the standouts of Tom's first three seasons although I prefer a few other ones slightly more. When I was watching Doctor Who all the way through with my wife, this is the first one that got her really excited, having her literally throw her socks across the room to show that it knocked her socks off. I like it. My own theory about the clams is that Nation Script called for the Cave of Mutations to have something with a lot of muscles, but the designer mistook that for the mollusk <laughs> rather than the sinew. Head <laughs> cannon accepted. J.M. Casey says, the whole attrition thing also, I think, explains something else that people tend to question about this story. How weird is it that the Caleds and Thals, these immortal enemies, live in two domes just a few miles away from one another? The tragic implication is that at one time, they probably lived on separate continents of a fertile and thriving planet. But now, with nuclear and chemical weapons basically rendering most of the planet uninhabitable, this is the only little corner where people can still survive. That's just a little bit more depression on an already depressing story. <laughs> nice job. Mark Dunstan writes, The podcast goes from strength to strength. Thank you very much. As does Tom Baker. Brilliant opening and great cliffhangers. Brilliant mad scientist Davros. The best incarnation. Too true. Felt so sorry for Ronson. The story gets stuck in places, but otherwise good. I'll give it nine experiments out of ten. Nicholas Rutherford writes, Agreed, it's probably the best of the season, although not my favorite, and probably the best Dalek story of the 70s. I just prefer the non-Dalek stories. There was a really nice exchange of dialogue between Sarah and Harry as they entered the menagerie that I really liked. He asked if she was scared. No, she replied abruptly, to which he said, well, I am. So not such the damsel in distress, and quite a new man for the 70s. Seven crappy clams out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Kieran James Evans says, It's probably an 8 or 8.5 out of 10 for me. It's very good, but it does have its flaws, and I do find parts 4 and 5 feel padded. I note there's a 90-minute edit on the Blu-ray. I've seen a lot of people say this is one to introduce new fans to classic. I love this story, but no. <laughs> my question to them is, have you tried to do that? Spoilers! The Doctor Who Society at my uni did, and it didn't go well. Despite there being over 20 people there for Genesis, there are only four 
including the host and myself, the next classic showing. People were leaving during it, and generally it seemed people were just bored by it. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. It's very long. It's very intense, and it would not be a good introduction. And you need a little bit of lore behind it as well. Yeah. Our friend the Whovian gal says, Finally, someone in the fandom is acknowledging the issues with Sarah's characterization, or lack yes! thereof, in season 12. Hinchcliffe and Holmes already had issues with writing women, and the addition of Terry Nation for Genesis only made it worse. Well, it wasn't really worse so much as non-existent. They just didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Which was the problem. Beardo Beatnik says, another great discussion, watchers. For many reasons, Genesis deserves 10 giant mutant clams out of 10. Very pro-clam bunch of mail here. <laughs> but Michael Wisher's delicious scene chewing is why it's the best. It, it really is. He's all over the place. Uh, Doctor Who 60s, 70s, and 80s, a.k.a. Paul Arthur, writes, Sounds almost sacrilegious to say so, but I've always found Genesis to be rather overrated. That's cool. It's Heresy. undoubtedly well made, but it just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> Having said that, it was another excellent episode from The Watchers. Thank you. I'm really enjoying your views on Tom's first season. We very much appreciate that, Paul. And on our recent 2022 Halloween special, Neil Rhodes said, I enjoyed the Halloween special and agree that Scars of Dracula isn't the best Hammer Dracula film. <laughs> and Dracula AD 1972 is more interesting. Yes, it is. Maybe next year you could review the 1974 horror film The Mutations, also known as The Freak Maker. Sounds like a weird variation on Mentos. Which stars <laughs> Donald Pleasance and Tom Baker. Ooh, that does sound pretty good. Okay, okay. Sarah Ann 86 says, Carry on screaming is fantastic. Frying tonight! <laughs> and closing things out, Paul Arthur once again says, great episode, guys. I love these little sideways looks at films Doctor Who actors appear in, and I'm very glad you all seem to enjoy Carry On Screaming. I think we all love that movie. That was great. And you watched more Carry On movies. Yes. And that completes the mail. Thank you, Don. And as a reminder, we really do love hearing all of your feedback, comments, thoughts, and questions. And as you've just heard, we do try to read out as many of them as possible. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at Watches4D or via email at Watches4D at gmail.com. And we would very much love to hear from you, so please do send us a note. Moving on and taking a look behind the scenes at Terror of the Zygons, when Robert Holmes took over as script editor for season 12, he mostly inherited a number of scripts that had been commissioned by the previous production team. However, he was also looking to recruit new writers to the show with the intent of bringing in a fresh style. One of these new writers was Robert Banks Stewart. Stewart duly informed Holmes that he had absolutely zero interest in writing a script set in space, but was very keen to develop a storyline set in his own native Scotland. And in particular, he wanted it to involve the Loch Ness Monster. In March 1974, Holmes and incoming producer Philip Hinchcliffe commissioned Stewart to write a storyline intended to close out season 12, tentatively entitled simply Loch Ness. The commission for scripts came two weeks later, with the serial being given six episodes. One key requirement that Stuart was given was to write out the character of Harry Sullivan, as the character had been conceived to be the action counterpart to an older Doctor, and Hinchcliffe felt that the character was now redundant thanks to the casting of a younger actor in Tom Baker. This was a decision that Holmes fervently disagreed with, arguing that Harry was a valuable and distinctive part of the show, but... Julie will be happy to hear Holmes obviously lost that battle. <laughs> Ironically, Hinchcliffe would later come to admit that Holmes was right. 
Additionally, the show's unit days were coming to an end, and the regular unit crew knew it. Nicholas Courtney met with Hinchcliffe in the BBC bar and suggested that Lethbridge-Stewart be killed off in Blaze of Glory. Hinchcliffe dismissed this notion, believing it to be a fate unbefitting of a character that had been so important to the show. Back on the writing side, things were kind of slow with Stewart as he was writing his scripts. He was unfamiliar with the style of Doctor Who and wrote the TARDIS team in the vein of the main characters from The Avengers, and Holmes had to intervene to guide Stewart in refining these elements. Holmes also encouraged Stewart to focus more on the Zygons than the Scarrison, as he felt the former to be more interesting and would be more easily able to interact with our main characters. I suspect that Holmes may have also known what probably could and couldn't be achieved on a BBC budget. Just a thought. During the scripting process, the serial also went through several name changes, including The Loch Ness Monster, The Secret of the Loch, Secret of Loch Ness, and The Secret of Loch Ness. As already mentioned, the serial was intended to close out season 12. However, events elsewhere caused the BBC to change their plans. ITV were about to premiere their glitzy new sci-fi show, Space 1999. And so it was decided that season 13 would be brought forward to start at the end of August 1975, rather than in January 1976, as it normally would have, in order to attempt to blunt the ratings for ITV's competitor show. This meant that the show's 13th recording block would have to start much earlier than usual, effectively causing seasons 12 and 13 to be recorded back to back. To ease the pressure on the schedule, it was decided that season 12 would be trimmed down from 26 episodes to 20 and to cut The Secrets of Loch Ness down to a four-part serial and also to move it to the beginning of season 13. Holmes worked closely with Stewart to cut the scripts down to size. Significant rewrites would have been needed anyway, as it turned out that the show's budget wouldn't have stretched to filming in Scotland, and the importance of Loch Ness would have to be scaled back. You just can't get the same locks in Sussex as you can in Scotland, I suppose. The original cliffhanger for part two involved the Scarrison attacking the Doctor as he rode across Loch Ness, and the change in location meant that this had to be revised to have him attacked as he walked across Tullock Moor. On set actually making it, assigned as director, we have the return of Dougie Camfield, who we haven't seen since season seven's Inferno. During the making of that serial, he collapsed due to stress that was aggravating a heart condition. Officially, that's what kept him away from the show for so long. But there are also plenty of rumours about difficulties between Camfield and Pertwee, with allegedly one or both of them being difficult to work with. Camfield had also allegedly fallen out with the show's regular composer, Dudley Simpson, and here he opted to use Jeffrey Burgeon instead. It's Burgeon's first contribution to the show, and he will return at the end of season 13 to contribute music to the Seeds of Death. Outside of the show, he also provided music for Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Life of Brian, and the Foresight Saga. Joining Camfield and Burgeon backstage, we have the return of costumer James Aitchison and George Galaccio continuing his run as production unit manager. As designer, we have the sole contribution of Nigel Curzon, who is also known for his work on Blake 7, Blackadder, All Creatures Great and Small, and the greatest show of all time, Zed Cars. Woohoo! Also of particular importance to this serial was the visual effects designer John Friedlander, who worked very closely with Camfield and Aitchison on the design for the Zygons, which were intended to resemble oversized embryos with suckers. <laughs> Interesting choice. Yes. The scripts also required a significant amount of model work involving both stop motion and puppetry to realise the Scarrison. 
It was during these sessions that Canfield found that the Scarrison was more comical than threatening. (laughs) And so he decided to use as little footage of it as possible. I tell you guys, it's as if no one learned the lessons from Invasion of the Dinosaurs. As a result, new material was written for part two, which explained that the Zygons had used nerve gas to knock out the villages of Tulloch to allow the Scarrison to pass through unseen. In post-production, Canfield had to make one further change to the beginning of part one, in which the TARDIS's arrival was cut. It was found that the levels of light changed so much between shots that they were unable to complete the visual effects of the TARDIS's materialization, and it would have effectively shown up as being invisible. So they just decided not to use that. The finished product was broadcast between the 30th of August and the 20th September 1975. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find the viewing figures for Space 1999, which premiered on the 4th of September. (laughs) But that show only lasted two seasons. And this show lasted 26, plus a TV movie and a continuation show that's now had 13 seasons. So I'll let you all decide for yourselves which show won the war. (laughs) <laughs> I'm pretty sure once Rob Zombie's Space 1999 comes out, we'll see, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, make it stop. <laughs> On that note, I'm going to shut up and hand over to Riley, who has the short summary this episode. Let me tell you the tale of a poor, poor group of lost aliens called the Zygons, who are only waiting for a ride back to their home planet with their little pet water lizard. Sadly, their home planet was destroyed in a stellar explosion, and they had nowhere else to go. So they quietly hid from the mean, mean Earth people, all sad and alone. One day, they decided to finally step out and try to make a home on Earth. But the Doctor and Unit cruelly destroyed them. They very well could have been the last of their kind. Sure, they may have kidnapped and killed a few people, but the moral here is, why can't we let Zygons be Zygons? (laughs) I knew someone was going to make that pun. (laughs) I was going to say, you built that entire short summary around the pun. I dig it. All right, let's talk about this part one. Okay. In part one, we have the doctor in a Tam Shanter. We have the brig in a kilt. <laughs> the return of Benton. Sarah has stuff to do. And Harry gets shot. <laughs> so first of all, we need to congratulate Julie on getting her story made into an episode. <laughs> I don't know how you did it, but nice job. <laughs> Congratulations on discovering time travel, Julie. You know, I, I wish you all weren't going to just like let everyone else know that <clears throat> I, was, I was trying to keep it secret because then everyone else would want to travel through time it's just me it really is the julie bingo card of cereals <laughs> <laughs> somehow we could have fit fraser hines in this like a cameo or something uh, that would have done it all right i understand guys that you think that i'm probably going to like this just because it's set in scotland and harry's the bad guy for a while but for some reason, I really like this story. So you guys aren't really <laughs> that, went that well. wrong. That went good, didn't? <laughs> I thought she was going to say, but pause, pause, pause. You're absolutely right. I <laughs> know. <laughs> oh I so obviously from the very get go, I love listening to the guy who is on the radio. Except I also was glad I had the captioning on because my God, was that a heavy accent at the very beginning? Yeah, just a bit. It took me a second to figure out where they were when the (laughs) thing was happening because it was shot very darkly. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, all right, it's an oil rig or or something. I do actually have to say that I think the the darkness worked in their favor because when they actually go to tear down the oil rig, per usual, 
darkness or black and white hides a lot of problems. And I actually really loved the model work at night. I thought that was really good. It was. Yeah, they really jumped into the action right off the bat. I have to say that would have made Michael Bay proud, that opening scene. I was like, (laughs) oh, wow, we're just destroying (laughs) offshore platforms now. Let's go for it. And then you combine that with the music that was just really creepy. And it built up this really great atmosphere. And you just know something bad is going to happen to that rig before it does. It's really well done. The music is phenomenal throughout this whole thing. It is Mm -hmm. so good. And it's not just because there's a lot of flute, because there is a lot of flute. I'm very happy about that. But the way that they use flute, clarinet, even some of the upper winds, we don't usually get that a lot to cause creepiness, but it can be really creepy if used right. And it's really well done here. This serial was the first one in a while where I actually did make the note of a particular musical moment and thinking like, wow, that was really, really good. (laughs) You know, I did the same thing. I'm wondering if it's the same piece of music. We'll see. Yes, we will, because it's episode three for me. All right. Same here. (laughs) Also, we get bagpipes. Lots. Oh, Oh, we get so much bagpipe. (laughs) And this is, yes. This is the moment when I said, where's Jamie when you need him? (laughs) And I have a question about that. So I don't understand. Did I miss a joke or something in the plot that the bagpipes immediately stopped once the doctor walks into the door? The whole thing about the bagpipes is the guy who runs the place Mm -hmm. has like foresight. Uh, So I think the joke is, is that the doctor gets there. So he stops. And then there's another sequence where he's playing a song for the dead, basically. Mm -hmm. And that then connects to another thing. So that's what I think it was doing there. It's also pretty funny because when you first hear the bagpipe, you think it's just part of the score. (laughs) But then it turns out it's actually a diegetic part of the scene because the guy's (laughs) playing the bagpipe. And because for a while, I'm like, that's really loud. That's almost overwhelming the dialogue. And then they mention it because they can hear it too. I'm like, oh, that's really clever. It's also at this moment when I first see the brigadier and I was like, hey, he's not in uniform. I don't like it. But then it shows his kilt and I'm like, oh, no, we're good. We're good. (laughs) So he's allowed to not be in uniform if he's wearing a kilt. I mean, yeah. (laughs) 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 oh julie this whole opening sequence is great you really kind of get a feeling for where they're at once we get past all the darkness and everything and a lot of the characters are just very interesting the duke when he gets introduced ah wonderful can we also talk about how important a duke is excluding members of the royal family there are only 11 dukes in the uk in the 21st century so Hmm. Dukes are a pretty big deal in terms of titles. So the fact that they just hitchhike and get picked up by the Duke of Forgill, really big deal. What's the exchange on that? How many Dukes does it take to equal a prince? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure like question. how powerful they are. The reality is they're not these days. We had the Santarin experiment, which was shot out in a field in Scotland, and that didn't look so great. But Scotland looked really good in this. I mean, outside of the quarry at the end, but no but quarries look great. it was supposed to be a quarry. It was exactly, supposed to be. Exactly. Like I said, it's just my point being is that a lot of the footage that you see was really quite pretty. And it was just a nice yeah. change to see that. It was really wonderful. And none of it was really Scotland. And also, did they change? Because I remember we talked about when they did outdoor shooting on robot they used video and it was kind of jarring for them to do that. It didn't seem like they were doing that this time. It didn't no, seem they like shot they did on film. 
that yeah, film. I would think that once they went video, they would just stayed with it because it was cheaper. But I prefer film, but okay. <laughs> There's a lot of things that I love. There's a lot of great lines. They're talking about the sea and the doctor lays out the it may be calm, but it's never empty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is fantastic. And then you've also got, I believe it's Huckle, the owner of the the oil company. Yeah, yeah. the oil company or, or it's either him or the one who owns the and I'm not sure. I sometimes got confused of which one of them was talking, but the one who was telling the stories about Tullockmore. Oh, that was Angus, I think. The yeah. Angus, yeah, the innkeeper. I love how Scottish tell stories, and they actually wanted to portray how Scottish people tell stories. I liked that the Duke, even though we eventually find out he's not the Duke, refuses to get Huckle's name right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the Simpsons joke about Burns, Mr. Burns, uh, not knowing much. Simpsons' name. Yeah. But it's so petty because you know he knows who he is. <laughs> and it's even better when you realize that it's an orange alien with suckers all over him that's yes. doing it. It's just <laughs> it makes it even bickering. pettier. I know. <laughs> We've mentioned it, the Zygons. Yes. Mm-hmm. I love the way they're shot initially. Just hands on controls, close up on the eyes. You don't see the full thing until very much towards the end of the episode. Because people had no idea what they were going to see. They didn't know what the hell a Zygon was back mm-hmm. in 1975. I actually wish they didn't even do the eye shot. I wish they had just stuck with the hands and then showed the full out shot. That's just me personally. But yeah, yeah it, it was revealed a little too early for me, but I forgive it. While we're talking about how the Zygons appear, I think they look better in Classic Who in this particular episode than they do on New Who. There's something about it, like the darkness of the sunken eyes looks so much better and creepier and more menacing in the New Who they look like they're a person like overstuffed in a suit. They're like a hot dog with eyes popping out. It just <laughs> it doesn't look intimidating. I knew who looks goofy. This actually looked threatening. I have to agree. I love how they were portrayed. I love their spaceship. I love how dark it is. I like how their controls that they use are very similar to what they are. It seems like more of like a living thing mm-hmm. i really enjoyed all of that it's all cronenbergian and disgusting and i'm here for it <laughs> it's very axos very yeah, axos i was gonna say back. we haven't yeah. seen like an organic spaceship since the cause of axos and i love that as a concept speaking of characters i want to talk about the nurse <gasps> i love her oh nurse ratchet she was more terrifying as a human than she was as a zygon <laughs> oh definitely i think she I was always her. a zygon but your point remains <laughs> Plus one to the Philip Hinchcliffe women count. And she's phenomenal. (laughs) Yeah, she is. Did we want to say anything other than that she's phenomenal and that she goes into the woman count? She's got that very kind of stereotypical, dour Scottish personality. You know, the Scots are either extremely cheerful and play up the stereotypes or they're really, really grumpy and kind of mean. And she's definitely the latter. She's the kind of dour and mean stereotype of the Scots. I thought she was just your evil nurse slash headmistress. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of that thrown in as well. I love the introduction of her, but one of my favorite scenes in part one, you have Harry lying in bed after being shot, and then he's saying, like, no, no, no. And then it flips to the doctor, who then also says, no good. And it was just really interesting how they went from one seed right into the other and flipped it that way. I just thought that some of the direction, man, oh, so good. Oh, yeah, yeah, haven't you missed Dougie Camfield? Oh. Yeah, and it's very, very good. I'm kind of surprised we just jumped over the the scene of the shooting. Oh. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, can we talk about how happy Julie was? Yeah, I know. What was your immediate reaction, Julie? Like, 
it was like crack of the gunshot. Harry drops. Was there a moment of doubt in you that you were thinking like, that's it? Did you break out the champagne? <laughs> that was the moment where I decided that Julie wrote this. <laughs> there was a moment where I was like, so I knew that Harry was no longer going to be a part of the crew, but I didn't think he actually died. So I was very confused for like a couple of seconds. The funny thing is, is because of that and how some things go throughout the serial, this is my favorite Harry serial. He's much more of a character here, isn't he? Yes, he is a great character, but it allows Sarah Jane to get stuff done. You learn things through Harry. Oh, my God. It's not just a question of Sarah Jane getting things done. She is a completely different character than she was last season. Is a character. um, Yeah, exactly. She's got like personality. She's got humor and and initiative. Moxie, she's got spunk, kid. I like it. It's exciting to see her like this again. It really, really made this serial very, very good in my book. And I'm kind of surprised that when Harry was on the bed in the hospital, I couldn't help but imagine being the community fan that I was of when they were having the scene of him mumbling. I thought it was just going to be mumbling, old, Olga, Olga, what are you trying to say? Old girl, what? Old girl, what? I have something to say about old girl later, and it's wonderful. I already know the scene you're thinking Uh, about. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> could be so good. It is at this point for part one. I sit there and I'm like, man, am I getting over this hump that I've been in where I'm not digging Doctor Who right now? Guys. At what point in this episode did you send us a group text regarding <laughs> that? <laughs> it was definitely in part one. Uh, I don't oh, know. I figured it's... that. I'm wondering yeah. when because I could see it within the first five minutes. But by the time the ending came along, it's it's obvious. <laughs> Well, I probably waited till there was an actual pause because I was like engrossed in the episode. Okay. Is that fair? That's fair. I think the only other thing we need to touch on in part one is we get a very brief shot of the Scarrison swimming. And it isn't too bad. Again, reason being is that it's a very, very close up shot. It's in black and white as well, since it's on a television screen. Mm-hmm. Right? If I'm recalling correctly. Could you see its head at any point in that? You saw its eyeball. Okay, then I did laugh when that happened. <laughs> because I'm like, it has googly eyes. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely showing less of it is the strategy here. And I'm glad that Camfield saw that too. Let's just admit, the Scarison is just a knockoff dish rag. It Come is. On. Yes, you, yes, this is a combination of a dinosaur and a dish rag. <laughs> Done. At the end of the episode... We have the Zygon attack Sarah Jane Smith, and that's our cliffhanger. And that takes us into part two. So do they have to turn back into the normal form to attack? Because they do that a lot. They do, Hmm. which seems a bit silly. Although it doesn't when Harry attacks Sarah. No, oh, we'll get to that. We're coming up. Let's hold off on that, because that's a beautiful thing. (laughs) I don't mind it so much. I think one of the things is they probably wanted to get the Zygons on screen a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's one of those kind of reasons rather than for a plot or story reason. I don't blame them too much because those Zygon outfits look amazing. Yes. You want to put that money on the screen and then never use them again until the show gets rebooted. (laughs) Yeah, that was funny. I was having that conversation with my partner and she asked me, when do they come back? And I was like, not until the stories you've seen. (laughs) (laughs) It's rather unfortunate because in this particular story, they're so good. Yes, they are. They really are. Even though they did apparently attend the Ice Warrior School of Diction. 
Yeah, <laughs> and their plan, once it's fully revealed, not exactly the best, but, you know. I think it was short-sighted, and considering that they were first stuck in a spaceship underneath Loch Ness, and then by themselves, I don't really blame them for being a little bit short-sighted. All right, on the plot, I wanted to talk about Sarah getting stashed in the decompression chamber, the Doctor finds her, and the Zygons lock them in and start draining the oxygen. And the Doctor's answer to Sarah not being able to breathe is to put her into a trance? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And the Doctor also puts himself in a trance himself, right? I mean, didn't he do that as well? I mean, he's kind of like in this weird kind of positioning when Benton comes in. Yes, he does. Yes. It It just... As one of the few things in this story that doesn't really work for me. I Agreed. think it works better if when he's hypnotizing Sarah, it's to make her breathe very shallowly and not much mm-hmm. to be able to survive on the oxygen there. That makes more sense. Also, doesn't he have like two sets of lungs or whatever BS they threw out <laughs> way back at the beginning of Pertwee? Two hearts, not two lungs. Does he not have more sets of lungs? He does have, not. Have I made up the lungs? Never mind. Yes. <laughs> so it hasn't been mentioned yet, but later something about a respiratory bypass system also gets added in. Okay. But that hasn't been that hasn't added been into law okay, just yet. So I'm getting all timey-wimey with it. Okay, never you mind. Are. You are. But in any case, I forgive it because what else are you going to do other than them die? <laughs> I'm just happy the fact that it was hypnotism back on the show and it wasn't used by the master again for yes. to hypnotize some old bureaucrat somewhere. Uh. <laughs> there are a number of things directly related to this scene I wanted to talk about as well. Firstly, Benton coming to the rescue. <gasps> One, I know Julie's happy. <laughs> Two, John Levine actually gets to look stressed and panicked and concerned and axes chops off here in a way that I don't think we have really saw in the latter part years. It would have been very awkward for him to just be the non-plussed <laughs> bitten that we expect. Oh, they're stuck in the decompression chamber. Yeah. I'd better oh, make coffee. Okay. Yeah, I'll get to it. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is this ain't Barry Letts' unit era. No, but sometimes it feels like they're kind of making fun of the unit era. Oh, I think they very much are. I think Holmes was very, very cognizant of that. I also like that at the same time, that's when the Brigadier and the other crew were gassed. So you're sitting there and you're like, man, like the only person who is left is Benton. So nothing better happened to Benton or else no one's getting rescued. The other thing is when the doctor comes round and he says that he performed a trick he learned from a Tibetan monk. Uh. So <laughs> was that Choji slash Kanpo or was that Padmasambhava? Uh, I don't know. I'm going to go with Padmasambhava because I'd rather it be him. Panda salad bar for the win. Yep. <laughs> because then that makes me feel a lot happier than it being the other one because I like to refuse that existence. <laughs> the other plot hole here and I'm sorry, but why didn't the Zygon just kill them? The Zygon locks them in, drains the oxygen, and walks off before it makes sure the job is done. And then later when it reports in, it basically, it was meant to kill them and left before it was done. And they're like, wait, what? You didn't kill him? Okay, they've been trapped under Loch Ness. What else do they have to do besides watch Bond movies? (laughs) That's fair. Come on. (laughs) It is somewhat of a trope, but it is the thing that Villains don't stick around and watch people die. We all know this. For himself, he wasn't in a safe spot. He could have been spotted. 
So he couldn't really just set up a lawn chair and read a book while they were in there. <laughs> I just think there were more effective ways. Yeah, just got to pull out a gat. Bam, bam. <laughs> Can I talk about something that's actually dumb? It's that symbiotic relationship between the Scarazan and the Zygons and that it what creates some sort of thing that the Zygons need in order to survive. They feed on its lactic fluid. That is stupid. <laughs> that is the worst and I hate it. That is like my least favorite thing about this entire story. That right there. They're trained to attack Cal. It kind of reminded me, and spoilers here for people who have not seen Peacemaker, it kind of reminded me of the alien relationship with the quote cow. Oh my god, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. But yes. It's very similar to that. 100%. Anyway, I just Ugh. had to point that out because I, big quotes here. I was like, this is the dumb thing that I don't like. Can you milk a cow, fucker? <laughs> can you milk a Saracen? Can you? How Apparently do you do it? they can. And they depend on it for their life. So naturally, they've got it trained to attack things. <laughs> I know he says that no human weapon can hurt it, but come on, you don't know. Right before we get to the next best part, which is going to be about Harry, the Sarah Jane thing, I did want to point out one thing that I thought interesting. I was looking at the Zygons and something looked really familiar about their faces. And I realized that I know what it is. To me, it looked like the design of Jim Carrey's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yes! Yes, I was right. Like, what is up with that nose? And then it came to me. They've got Grinch noses. Grinch noses. Okay, I'm so glad I was not the only one because I was just sitting there. I was like, I just keep getting glimpses of Jim Carrey. And <laughs> just in time for the holiday season. Uh... I cannot stand Jim Carrey, and I try as much as possible to not think about him. Aww. So thank you, guys. You have ruined the Zygons for him. <laughs> Before we talk about the scene I know Julie wants to talk about, I very briefly wanted to mention they remembered Sarah has a job. Yes. <laughs> they have her working on journalism things. Oh my God. They, In another I kind of story this. she will never be able to get published. I am doing journalism things. <laughs> <laughs> so good. All right. So we have Harry coming in. He's now a Zyg Fake oh, Harry. Fake Harry. Fake Harry comes in and Sarah Jane is like, something's not right and I'm going to chase him. And oh man, first off, that flute clarinet duet thing that's happening while Sarah Jane is chasing Harry. Perfection. I love that whole chase sequence, but let's talk about the shot of Harry in the shadows with this like evil look on his face as Sarah Jane is trying to find him in that bar. And oh my God, that's one of the most beautiful shots I've seen in a long time on Doctor Who. And then that entire oh. little section just turns into a slasher movie for a little yes. bit. Yeah. Again, oh. that's something that would never have happened in the Let's and Dicks era, having one companion attack the other with a pitchfork. Oh my God. But oh, that just the direction of mm -hmm. Harry in the shadow is just perfection Mwah, so yeah. good in case it isn't obvious we have to nominate dougie, dougie. oh yeah oh, i'm nominating that scene as one of my favorite scenes because of just how perfect it was i completely agree oh. it's wonderful and i think what tipped her off is that he didn't say old girl like within the first two seconds <laughs> that he was in the door he's like okay something's up with him what's going on more on that later yes, yes. exactly it's funny because that scene, as Andy was talking about how severe it was, and I swear when he fell off the hayloft, I thought, because of how intense it was, I thought he was going to impale himself on the pitchfork when he fell. I was totally expecting that. I'm like, we're getting serious now. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
going to suddenly turn into, what was it, Friday the 13th Part 4? Yeah. <laughs> the very end. Yeah. <laughs> Which, it does kind of resemble it. Just yes, a little, a little bit. bit. How many years before that was this? Probably about 10. Yes. At minimum, yeah. The other thing I thought was curious on this is how they have the ability to disperse their molecules from afar. <laughs> remotely destroy your friend's corpse. <laughs> it's fine. Handy. Everything is fine. That's pretty metal right there. I know I'm nitpicking on this. I really, really did enjoy this story. There are just a number of things that I think in the hands of a lesser director really would have dragged this down. And it's a testament to Dougie that actually this story is phenomenal. I think you're absolutely right on that. I mean, we'll get to our discussion about the Zygon's kind of final plan towards the end, but <laughs> the disintegration, the... Goofy Saracen, the trance, the hypnotism. Yeah, it's kind of amazing when you start putting it all together, how, despite that, how much I liked this. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, though. it feels kind of like a parody of a lot of aspects of the Pertwee era. Look at part of the plot. You could almost replace the Zygons with the Silurians in terms mm -hmm. of what's happening, just without the cool body replacement stuff. The Autons. Maybe even the Autons. Yeah. And you know what's funny about that, though, is the fact that the author didn't really know that much about Doctor Who, so it seemed like. Didn't you, Julie? <laughs> <laughs> but then you also have Robert Holmes, and we know he has done a significant amount of rewrites in the season 12 scripts that came before this. So we don't know how much of this was Robert Banks Stewart and how much of this was Robert Holmes. All right. Anything else in part two? Obviously, there's the Zygons deciding that the Doctor is too dangerous and they have to kill him. So they've got their tracker thing. I forget what it's called. Doodad. Reciprocator. <laughs> that attaches itself to his hand like a barnacle. Oh, very, very Cronenberg there. This is very existence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, so good. I thought it was creepy. And his scream when it attaches itself yeah. to his hand was unnerving. So we end with the Zygon leader encouraging the Doctor to die while the Scarrison attacks him. And that's our cliffhanger. And we're into part three, where Harry saves the day. Harry does save the day. Yes. Just by pressing random buttons. <laughs> he bumbles in, he presses random buttons, and the Doctor's saved. So not really on purpose. Good job, Harry. You do realize that's something like Jamie would do because he did that in Tomb of the Cybermen when he just oh, yeah, pressed yeah. buttons. Well, he learned he that did. in the second Doctor. If there's a button <laughs> or dial, you got to press it. Did that in Mind Robber as well. Yeah, all over the spot with Jamie and the second Doctor with that. Also, these Zygons, they make too many assumptions. The Reciprocator <laughs> is dead, so the Doctor must also be dead. Come on, guys. You've decided yeah. this guy's too dangerous to live. You probably want to go ahead and validate that assumption before you just move on with your lives. Very Doctor Evil of them. <laughs> yes. I'm sure it's fine. Again, we've discussed the Zygons. They're just short-sighted. I don't think their plans are that bad. I just think that because they've been stuck underneath a body of water for too long that they just don't know a lot of things. They're very, very lucky that this is so well made. <laughs> so. <laughs> also, I love the fact that when they're looking for the bug that's going to be in that inn, <laughs> it was so obvious. It right? was that deer, because dear God, that eye just... <laughs> yeah. Eye. <laughs> I like it when it moves at some point later on. And Angus like, is like looking at it. That's very evil like... dead too. 
it's even funnier when suddenly it's all like, well, the Duke of Forgill gave that to me. And it kind of thinking, oh, could he possibly be a Zygon? I don't know. It's not like his groundskeeper is already established as a Zygon. My favorite <laughs> part about that is this must be so very British, but when it's raised, that concept, they had to clarify. They couldn't just let it sit there. They had to make it very obvious and clarify that, oh, it's not the Duke that could have been involved with this. It's the Zygons had to have mimicked the Duke. You didn't need to say that. Everyone's getting impersonated by the Zygons. You don't have to make sure the Duke's name is clear here, okay? It's fine. Let's make sure not to upset the Duke. We could not have that. We could not put any sort of shadow on his name. Well, and also <laughs> it's too obvious as well when they were like, yeah, he kind of changed once the people came in for the oil rigs. It's like, oh, well, that's just coincidence. Don't lay that on thick. <laughs> but we lose Angus. That was sad. Angus is great. Sad. Yeah. I really was hoping for him to carry through all the way and get like maybe a funny like ending scene of him seeing the TARDIS and making some sort of silly analogy or metaphor. No, he should have been playing the Doctor Who theme as they leave. Yeah. <laughs> On the bagpipes. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. <laughs> Did anyone else think Angus was a little bit camp? Yeah, he was a little bit. I couldn't like... Like half a point. Yeah. Half? Half. Okay. He was somewhat camp, but not enough camp. We've seen camp before. A and... sprinkling of camp. <laughs> a light dusting. A light dusting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love how our minds went the same place there, Riley. <laughs> we go to the Duke of Forgil, Forgal, whatever. Yeah, Forgil. whatever. Forgil Castle looks like it has seen better days. But man, that library. I need one. Yeah, I want yeah. one of those. Before we get into the library... Can we talk about the Zygon disguising itself as the nurse in the woods? Yes. Oh. Blood moving down her arm, and you just know that poor soldier is a dead man. Yeah, that she was brains him well with done. a rock. Dicks and oh. Letts would never. We're getting brutal. The first doctor would. <laughs> yeah, the first doctor definitely would. There was a callback to the first doctor. There yes. it is. There it is. Verity Lambert and David Whitaker absolutely would have, but Dicks and Letts would never. <laughs> This ain't your kids' uh, show yeah. anymore. Yeah, sorry I did miss that, but oh man, that was an excellent scene. Just her, oh, they did that so brilliantly. Yeah. So brilliantly. But the library, as you were mentioning, once Sarah finds the hidden door during that awesome Scooby-Doo moment, oh, here that's it comes. where the music keeps yes! in. Yes! And I'm like, this is amazing. Yes, is it is. <laughs> was it a theremin? It sounded like a theremin almost. It had that like flighty kind of sound. Ethereal, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That was my moment too. Right then, I wrote that down. Like this is really good, and not just that. They took their time. Camfield took his time with her. I really love that moment of her being unsure about the oh. automatic door. That's so so relatable though, because like, she doesn't know what the hell is going on. She doesn't know if she goes in there like she'll be trapped in there forever. She's got to know she's got to exit. It's great. Even before all of that, when Kaber brings her the set of stairs, uh, not stairs, but the little ladder so that she mm -hmm. can like climb up and she sticks her tongue out at him. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, that's good. Also, I thought those stairs were going to break. <laughs> So far, up to this point, we're getting near the end of episode three. Sarah Jane hasn't been captured. She's chased down a Zygon that was disguised as Harry. She's been showing human personality and deducted that they were being surveilled. We didn't even talk about that. She was the one that determined that. She figured yeah, that out. She had a nice little joke about how she got all the dirty jobs. Right. Because the library was so dusty. So 
what the hell writer's room like <laughs> a sudden change what why i mean okay i'm happy especially the interesting thing is that one this was supposed to be at the end of the last season which yeah. last season we mentioned that she was completely awful i think honestly it probably stems from the writing I think it's a combination of the writer probably being like, well, I can give the woman more to do because he's not Holmes or Hinchcliffe. And then Dougie Canfield. The other thing to think of to your point, Julie, is if Stuart was very heavily basing his early drafts on the Avengers, if you think back to how much an Emma Peel has to do in the Avengers... Emma Peel very heavily drives forward the plot in episodes of the Avengers, which is what Sarah is doing here. So I think some of that, even though Holmes had to work to tone that down, still bled through. And I like it. All right, guys, here it is. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. Sarah Jane does not trust that it's Harry. <laughs> but then when Harry says, old girl. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> That's what convinces her. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I'm just glad that there was payoff. Like, <laughs> I've been harping on this old girl thing. <laughs> And everyone's just like, oh, well, he's just a stuck up twit. Well, twat, whatever. Yes, I got that. And now I feel validated. The fact they made it a season long joke. I love it. So good. And they escape. So Harry and Sarah Jane escape. But then the doctor gets kidnapped. It's the doctor who gets kidnapped, not Sarah Jane. And we have our cliffhanger of them flying away with the doctor, but not before. Just talking about callbacks here. And Brigadier <laughs> getting in some bombing of some aliens. He absolutely <laughs> loves it. He loves it so much. It's his favorite thing to do. Especially when he heard there was only like five of them. He's like, these are the last five. Quick, quick. We got to shoot them right now. <laughs> and, and the perfect thing was that as soon as there was the explosion, the doctor's like, sounds like the Brigadier. <laughs> Oh my god. We skimmed over it, but when the doctor goes into the tunnel to head into the spaceship, that scream mm. is blood curdling. Yeah, it yeah. is. Oh man. How good is the model work on the Zygon spaceship taking off? So surprisingly good. <laughs> I'm so surprised at how good that was. Dougie Canfield, yo. I have one thing to say. This is one of the very few criticisms that I have of this. As the spaceship is taking off, it shows everyone taken aback by the noise. I don't think the noise was quite obnoxious enough. I feel like they could have done better. <laughs> wow. Bold you want it to be obnoxious for the viewer as well? Yes. After it, all it, the classic who you've made it through. <laughs> and complained about the sounds being so obnoxious. Because it needed to reflect, like... Julie, Julie, are you trying to make your dog extremely concerned? <laughs> yes. He was not okay. concerned at all. Anyway. Is this the new way we judge this? The rumble <laughs> concern scale? Oh, man. Other than that, that model work was great, surprisingly good, and I really enjoyed all the way up through here. Part four? Part four. What is the golden haggis lucky dip? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> I assume that's some kind of raffle. Yeah. Okay. Gotta go uh, on Urban Dictionary for that one. Let's not <laughs> it's not suitable to save for a podcast, I'm guessing. No, it's going to be some sort of charity raffle. Uh, okay. Just made me hungry for haggis, that's all. <laughs> it's a little frustrating that they didn't think too much about the whole energy commission thing, but eventually it comes back. You mean when Harry poo-poos Sarah's research? Yes. 
What an imbecile. <laughs> you just had I to I can't say believe that. Unit weren't providing security for this conference. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Unit has been doing well, so they weren't being punished. <laughs> Everyone's heading to London in this episode, so this is where things fall apart for Julie because we're no longer in Scotland. It's not just that. There's a couple of things that I found very bizarre. The Zygon spaceship goes from Scotland to I actually have no idea where. It's near that quarry, right? It lands in a quarry. It's meant to be on the west side of London is where the quarry is, which, by the way, plus one to quarry quarry. I love how they have a quarry standing in for a quarry. Yes. That's so meta. (laughs) (laughs) And then I guess one of my questions is, so I can understand how UNIT can get there so quickly to London and everything, but Broton gets off of his spaceship and goes by foot into town to get all the way to this place. He probably doesn't know much about cars, so he probably doesn't even try to like hitchhike or anything. So I really question how he could get there so quickly. Hang on, hang on. So Broton has been the Duke and we've seen him be snarky towards Huckle. We've seen him driving. He probably took the Jeep. Did he have the Jeep parked on the spaceship? I think he got off and took public transport. Oh, okay. Yeah, he took the Jeep. Before we get off this topic, I have to say Broton sounds like an affectionate term exchanged <laughs> in a frat house. Sup, Broton? Sup, Broton? Oh, but we do get the brigadier talking to a lady prime minister. Yeah, mm. and that line was completely ad-libbed by Nick Courtney. Yes. A few people have done a bit of revisionism and tried to claim that it was explicitly Margaret Thatcher. I'm looking at you, Sandifer. <laughs> It could not have been Thatcher, and it's generally accepted that who he was referring to was Shirley Williams, who at the time was serving in Harold Wilson's administration. Also, when was the last time we talked about Sandifer? (laughs) Yeah. And by we, we mean you. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about the uncomfortableness. The doctor's able to get himself free on the ship. He's running amok on the ship. He finds the humans that are using the little light scanner thingies. The controls to get them out eh, could have been, (laughs) they look a little, there could have been a different way of doing that is all I'm saying, because it just looks very awkward. (laughs) Nope, it's fine. Okay. (laughs) Don't get uncomfortable, Riley. Okay. (laughs) Come on, like you've never seen anything that uncomfortable in Doctor Who before. (laughs) At least he wasn't wearing a cape. <laughs> I think it's just worse about the fact that it was all, everything was very organic on that ship, I think. but Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Anyway, moving on. I love the Doctor's swagger as he programs the self-destruct oh. on the spaceship and the way Tom Baker does it. He goes, anyone know what this is? And they all kind of go, well, no. And he goes, it's a self-destruct and it works like this. <laughs> He is just fantastic and just continuing to have the absolute time of his life in the role. I agree. I also have to ask, and being a person who's seen sci-fi for so long now, what is the purpose of self-destruct mechanisms on ships? I never could really wrap my head around it. I don't really see the point because it always used to be twisted and destroy the villain in some way. I just can just imagine a scene back when this ship was originally built with Zygon engineers trying to convince Broton that there's no need to include this in the construction of this ship. They're like, are you sure? Are you really sure you want this? Nobody actually does put this in. It's only in movies. He's like, no, 
It's got to have this. Well, it's like you've always got to have ventilation shafts that are big enough oh. for a grown man yeah. to for Bruce Willis to throw. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Technically, there are ventilation shafts that are that big, but that's besides the point. But they're few and far between. It's not standard design. <laughs> I assume that the self-destruct is to stop the ship from falling into enemy hands. I mean, the time you actually see it used effectively is in Star Trek First Contact. And Star Trek 3. And Star Trek 3. All right, come but on, yeah. guys. <laughs> Nerds! Okay. <laughs> All right, so we've got that self-destructing, and he's locked the other ones in there, so the Doctor is committed to killing a few of them. And Broton's loose in London. Mm-hmm. And Harry is back in his snazzy uniform. Broton's loose in London on spring break. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, this is like I'm having such an awesome time in London. <laughs> and we continue to have good model work when the spaceship explodes. Yeah. I'm going to try to keep us on track, everyone. But about the Scarrison, so. though. <laughs> the Scarrison scene at the very end, I guess it was good because it was the ending. It was kind of a lighthearted, kind of happy ending. So it, it's okay that he looks utterly goofy. He's just happy to be there. He's happy to be involved. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but. Do you know what happened again? We got another shoulder rub of death. Oh, we, we did. did. Yes. And I love that no one gives a shit about that unit soldier that died. <laughs> oh, can't do anything about him. All right, whatever. Let's move on. It's a red shirt. No one cares about the red shirts. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, he is just absolutely raging by the end. You know, I can destroy the planet or become its master. Come on, Broton, calm down. Or you can get shot by a few random unit scrubs and that's the end of your plan. <laughs> and again, I think this is where they're taking the piss. The fact yeah. is they've got all these grandiose plans to completely terraform the planet. And there are five of them who are very susceptible to bullets. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the doctor's point Firearms, of you can't my one weakness. <laughs> you can't rule the planet in hiding. You've got to come out and wave a tentacle, as the doctor says. Yeah, and then also, don't forget, at the, like in episode two, when they're explaining to Harry what the Scarison is, and he's like, "Well, we've got a nuclear weapons, so whatever." <laughs> like he didn't, he didn't care. <laughs> they're one hundred percent taking the piss here. <laughs> but I'm all here for it. It's great. Oh yeah, same. Come on, what was Broton thinking at the end? Was he really have lasted that long as like a solo alien warlord oppressor with no spaceship, no tech, just him on Earth against the world? No, someone else would have shot him. When basically one of your greatest people, or at least one of your people of the six, bites it by falling out of the thing of a bar. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, it's the once he's committed, he's committed. It's That's yes. true. That is true. The doctor sends the reciprocator to the Scarrison. That CSO is terrible. <laughs> Camfield 100% made the right choice to minimize the Scarrison's use. Mm-hmm. And then we're back in Scotland for the end. And we get the Brigadier in a kilt again. So I know Julie's happy. And we get beautiful flute music again. Get the Duke wanting to see the doctor's contraption. And that gives us the out for Harry. Yeah, Harry is out. Harry's just like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> Had a bullet graze my head. That's enough for me. Peace. (laughs) He says that he would rather take the Intercity, which was a train service, into London. Good for him. So, bye-bye, Harry. And, spoiler, the Doctor's not taking Sarah straight back to London. What? That liar. That liar. (laughs) No. And I love the very end of it, with Forgill berating Lethbridge Stewart for not taking Sarah and the Doctor's return tickets for a refund. And that pays into that stereotype of the scots as being 
tight with money. I thought you were a Scotsman. <laughs> I think one of my favorite things that I've noticed a lot is that if we have a story that has the unit crew, they almost always let it end with the brigadier. And I think that's wonderful. Yeah, he always gets that farewell scene with the TARDIS. And I don't know, there's something kind of familiar and homey about that. I've got some news to break to you all on this, and I just don't want you guys asking. This is the last time we see the Brigadier for quite a while. Uh, yeah, I knew that. I know Don did, but yeah, we're not going to see him for quite a few seasons. All right, time to rate this bad boy, and this time round, we start with Don. Well, crap. <laughs> afraid you were going to say that. I don't really have anything to add at this point, because... Even though there are some things about this serial that are kind of dumb and silly, I think that dumbness and silliness is there on purpose. And that's what I like about this serial is everything that's there, except for the Scarison design, <laughs> seems very intentional. The direction is great. The music is incredible. There are certain scenes uh, like when Sarah is exploring the hidden passage going down into the ship. The lighting is really good. It's all very effective. And it's also funny and enjoyable. And it's kind of different because I know I gave Genesis of Daleks a 10 because it achieved its what it was going for. But it's not necessarily the most enjoyable serial to watch. This is fun. This is really good. I enjoyed it a lot. I can't believe they never brought the Zygons back. I'm giving it a 9 out of 10 really disgusting, uncomfortable looking controls. <laughs> Julie, let's hear your thoughts. There would be a lot of repetition to what Don said, but I'll hit some highlights again. Oh, the music. The music was glorious. Dutters, I love you, but you got some competition. I love that Sarah Jane had something to do. I have been missing that for a very long time, which is why I could never give anything else a 10 because for doing that to a companion, that automatically knocks you down. I thought it was fun. And I thought that Dougie Canfield did such an amazing job of working with what he was given because, you know, the Scarison we've talked about before. So I am giving this nine and a half Ooh. Brigadiers and Kilts out of ten. Uh, I really thought you were going to give us a ten out of ten for a second. It was Oh, it's so close. It's so very close. I think the whole Scarison being like their source of being able to survive is really dumb. <sighs> And their plans were a little bit short-sighted, some things like that. It's so close, man. Maybe a 9.75 even. Well, I think it's official. Julie is never giving a 10 out of 10. Oh. <laughs> it's hard It'll happen. For... <laughs> it will. It will. All right. Riley. I really, really like this one. It feels like the show is suddenly really starting to click. I think it is most likely due to the revitalization of Sarah Jane's character. That was wonderful. Another positive aspect that I recognize in this is that you could totally see them shoehorning the Daleks and the Cybermen into the story unnecessarily. It's great. Instead, they came up with a new villain to the Who's rogues gallery. I thought they were wonderful. The FX were good. The setting was a nice change. The pace was great. No filler. It's just well executed. And like everyone says, it's silly, but because it's executed well... I'm all for it. The only thing keeping me from giving it a higher score was perhaps a lack of depth, which maybe that wasn't there because of them making fun of third Doctor tropes. And of course, as I already mentioned, the slightly questionable master plan for the Zygons that was revealed at the end. So I give it eight and a half Dino Con thrusts out of ten. 
And that leaves me. And I've been kind of hard on this story as we've talked about it. I've seemed to be the one who's pointed out every single flaw. And yet I really love this one. I really, really enjoyed it. I started watching it at 10.30 one night with part one. And I just wanted to keep going. But sadly, I work a nine to five job and needed to go to sleep so I wouldn't feel like hell the next day. I could have watched the whole thing in one sitting. I think it was so well made, so well directed. And I think as Dom pointed out, a lot of the things that seem rather silly were intentionally silly. And I know Julie's probably going to slap me for saying this, but I've been so good and not doing this this episode. This is one of the ones I saw really early in my childhood. <laughs> and the Zygons scared the shit out of me when I was like six or seven years old. Because they are disgusting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> They're really you know, gross. And they can turn into your friends. You know, you don't know if your friend might be a Zygon. So they scared the hell out <laughs> of me as a kid. And they get some bonus points for that. Everything here, the guest actors. I think John Woodnut as the Duke of Forgill and Broton, he played both was phenomenal and I would like to give him an early nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Can I add the nurse to that? You can. I think overall, just the guest actors, the music, the direction, our regulars being on fire, Sarah having more to do, even Harry being used effectively, just make this incredibly, incredibly successful. So I will give this nine and a half self-attaching barnacles (laughs) out of 10, which gives us a story average amongst the four of us of 9.13. And looking back, that is the highest since the demons, which also gave an average of 9.13. Wow. To get higher than that, you have to go all the way back to the mind robber, which had 9.25. Wow. Oh, boy. Yeah, we thought highly of this one. And on that bombshell, we've reached the end of our episode. We will be back next time as we head back off into space without Harry in Planet of Evil. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. And as always, have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Grinch Noses, was recorded on Wednesday the 9th of November 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, it would be a shame if the show followed up on an all-time classic with something absolutely terrible. At least we can look forward to Planet of E... Uh, well, no, never mind. <laughs>